Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today, our guest is Robert Pay, a director of business development at Alvarez and Marcel. Robert has spent his career in leadership positions in professional services organizations as the head of relationship management and in various business development roles, as well as several roles where he had the title of chief marketing officer. Originally from the UK, he now resides in New York City. Robert, I've given our listeners some insight into your role and background. Can you expand on what I've said and give us a glimpse into your role at Alvarez and Marcel? Yes, started my career in an advertising agency move into professional services marketing and found myself as uh, head of marketing, the global CMO role at Clifford Chance, an interesting exposure to the world of law firm marketing for seven years before going off to be Chief Marketing Officer for the London Stock Exchange. I've spent 10 years as the Chief Marketing Officer of um, two law firms, the other one being Taylor Wessing. What do you think is the main difference between being in the corporate environment and a firm environment or a partnership model type environment? People tend to do what you say in a corporation because of your job title. It doesn't matter what your job title is in a partnership business you're always having to um, persuade people to do things. That's a very good transition comment to our first question. What personal strengths or habits do you bring to your role that have allowed you to be successful? It's exactly back to what we were just talking about. It's the ability to be persuasive or at least plausible to people who are, one, very busy two very successful, so they often don't really see why it is they should be doing anything new or different. And the skill is essentially about managing people. Certainly early on in my career, I found I had to manage upwards. I was in an advertising agency uh, as the most junior animal in such organizations, an account executive. And basically, it was your job to make sure that everything happened on time, that you were coordinating between the traffic department, the uh, creatives, and the client, as as well as the the media planning department. And you had to make lots of much more senior people do things on time. So managing upwards is something that's been pretty useful to me. And I think really, it doesn't matter, you know, how senior your role is in a in a partnership, and it doesn't matter whether you're on the board or the executive committee, frankly, you're always managing up when you're dealing with people who actually own the business. And then as I ended up in leadership roles, learning how to manage teams of people is critical. Largely across, I would say, because a lot of people I've worked with were similar age, similar background, and frankly, similar ability to me. And then you've got more junior people. And one of the critical things I see as the role for a leadership person in a business development function is to try and 
develop that junior talent and frankly give people air cover as well, which I think is uh, very necessary. Agree with you that the differences in the model is really that persuasion. And I would suggest, you know, part of your role as a leader is to help others learn how to persuade, not rocket science. You know, I do want to ask about both strategies you've employed and tactical recommendations you've made to partners about how to grow their book of business. You choose strategy first. So I think the key thing about strategy is it's about making choices, what kind of work you want to do and who you want to do it for. I think the first thing is to be very clear about what it is you want to do. Secondly, who you want to do it for, to work out what your own personal brand proposition is. If you end up stepping outside your comfort zone, then the likelihood is you're going to fail. And one of the good things about working with smart professionals is they tend to be relatively self-aware. They do have some handle on their own limitations. I've had other guests talk about personal brand. And I think that that's an interesting point, though. Of course, if they're smart and self-aware, it will help them determine what their personal brand isn't. But how would you suggest one go about defining their personal brand? I think the key thing is work out what it is that you're actually good at. And it may not be what it is you what you feel you're good at. So you have to actually seek feedback. I think feedback loops both from clients and from colleagues, as well as from the people who you report to, actually helps you to understand why you are good and how you are good. And it may differ completely from what it is you think is important about you. I absolutely agree. Personal brand, being self-aware, the beginning of developing a strategy. What tactical things have you seen, Robert, that you feel have made a difference in the business development skills of the folks that you've worked with? Well, I think the most critical skill is the ability to listen and understand and put yourself into the client position and to share their perspective. And the people who are good at doing that tend to, I think, do very well. And they're often not necessarily the most outgoing people. One of the most successful partners I ever worked with, who literally had to be dragged screaming and shouting to go and do an interview. The way I sold it to him was to say, you're doing this for the firm. I know you don't want to do it. He was a team player. I would say understand what it is the clients want and not putting yourself maybe second or third behind the client and the firm. So thinking about what is it the firm can offer to this client as well, rather than thinking about what it is your role is. I think people can act as a block on clients getting very good service because they are shutting down the rest of the firm, becoming a bottleneck and controlling the relationship too much. Someone used to describe to me as seeing the deal. What is it that the client is trying to do? You might be wanting to explain something to do with a piece of law, but if they're actually trying to buy a property or um, win a case, the reality is you need to be able to always have what the end objective is in mind. Recall a very good anecdote about a deal that was taking place in London and involved a property where there was some 17th century grazing rights. And the lawyers spent about two or three hours arguing about 
whether or not this was an impediment to selling the building and whether there should be some warranties sought for that. The investment bankers said, look, the likely of anyone coming along to enforce that is zero. It was a classic example of where people found the legal aspect really interesting, but it was getting in the way of the deal. Right. And it wasn't helping the client achieve the goal that they had in front of them. You said you were able to get the partner to go to the meeting because he was a team player and because it was for the firm, he was willing to do it. He did not want to do it as part of representing himself and growing his business. It wasn't something he was comfortable with. I'll use that word because that's really where my question lies. How did you make him comfortable? Saying, of course, it's for the firm is one thing, but making him personally comfortable with actually being present and executing on behalf of the firm. How did you manage through that? Well, I actually rehearsed him on the sort of things were like to be said to him. The reality of that particular scenario is that being labeled as the best of this, that and the other, the raw material behind that is swank. And that is something that people feel uncomfortable with. Certainly people of a certain type, certainly from my country, would feel bashful about being singled out in that way. He felt comfortable. We gave him the the vocabulary to be able to deal with this praise that was being heaped on him. We enabled him to pay tribute to some of the people that had actually helped him early in his career which was quite a good mentoring message internally as well. Very interesting. And thank you for sharing that. He became more comfortable through role playing and through practicing how to respond. I think that's critical. And it's definitely something that I have recommended with different lawyers and actuaries that I work with that are really uncomfortable with those questions. But I think the cultural difference, you know, not wanting to promote a skill because it wasn't culturally comfortable. He did not want to highlight the fact that he was so strong in something. I can tell you, Robert, when I was working in London in a particular part of my career, I would hear this a lot when I would ask our team to talk with the client about who else was bidding. They would tell me that they could not ask, that that was rude. So we we had a lot of conversation and a lot of role playing about how do you ask that question nicely. So there was comfort. I do think that is part of it. So how do we make people really comfortable about asking those questions, which are clearly fine business questions or talking about experience because it clearly is a way to get a customer comfortable with doing business with you. Those are finesse type things. First off, do you have a particular method and then other success stories around where you've done that I think would be quite helpful? It's very interesting that you you should mention that. I mean, people do have a lot of trouble in asking about quite fundamental things like, um, where are we on the roster and approximately what's our share of your purse when it comes to buying professional services or even, you know, asking for meetings. And I mean, frankly, sometimes I've I've even had that here in, in New York where, you know, somebody who met somebody maybe 15 years ago, worked with them quite closely on a case, probably one of the best known lawyers in New York. My internal client was a regulatory professional. He wanted to get in contact with this person about a monitorship. So, I mean, what I did in the end was I ended up phoning up the PA to this person and I told her there'd be a very important document coming around and could she make sure that Mr. X was alive to it? And we actually sent... We sent it round by hand that day and we got the meeting. This person I'm talking about internally was not exactly a shrinking violet, but 
uh, he was a bit in awe of the, this person's reputation. So, you know, there are things that you you can actually do yourself, certainly as a as a, a BD person, you know, picking up the phone if people really can't do it. And you think, I wouldn't have done that for every occasion, but certainly that one was, was really worth it because it was a $15 million piece of work. Yeah, and I think anything that as a business professional we can do to support the professionals that we're working with and make it more efficient and more comfortable, especially if it's going to be effective, why not? Getting comfortable with the fact that it's just a phone call. It is a reach out, right? You're not committing to something through that. Frankly, it's how business gets done. I had a early in Leffa being published that said when she prospects, she's very clear. She's a partner in a major firm and she's very clear with the people she's calling that she's calling to talk with them about their business and that she is looking to grow her business as a lawyer and, and grow her practice. And she actually says that. She actually says it. And I've had other guests say, really, is that that's somewhat different. And it's for this particular person, it makes her more comfortable actually executing to say, I'm calling because I want to talk to you about your business and the possibility of us doing business together and just putting it right on the line. She's like, I don't want to be their friend. So I might want to be a work friend at some point, but I'm calling for, for new business, which I think is helpful. I mean, today we've actually got so many, so much in the way of good technology to help us do those things. So going through other people that you know well and feel comfortable with to ask for introductions. So, you know, LinkedIn is invaluable for that. We're actually living in a much easier era to try and to actually reach out to people. The only thing that makes it hard is just how hard everybody seems to be working all the time. So, you know, your communication can easily get lost. Robert, the timing of your roles, definitely your roles in business development, you've been working through very changing market conditions. A lot of new entrants into the market, price compression. There's a number of things going on in professional services and have been going on since sub-2008. In your opinion, how has the actual business development process changed due to these changing market conditions? The biggest change. Well, there's been two really big changes. Since the, the global recession of 2008, but possibly even creeping up before that, there's been immense downward pressure on fees, not just for, for law firms, but for other professions as well. And I think what's been very interesting is how much pressure our internal clients are under. So if you look at, um, say, a general counsel, Probably since I've been in you know, law firm marketing, uh, which is about 20 years now, you have seen constantly panels have been shrinking. CFOs have been asking the question, I get my audit done with one or maybe two accounting firms if you're a global player. How come you need 350 law firms around the world to do your work? So... Shrinking panel is um, has been one of those issues. The other thing has been cost, and that's I think it's, there's two factors at play here. Firstly, if you look at some of the very big corporations, it is not difficult to find that they are spending three or four hundred million dollars a year on professional fees. Some of them. So that while individual firms may not be, you know, a major target, that whole 
area has been a target and that's resulted in people going in-house certainly in the legal profession we all know a lot of partners have gone in-house uh, you know explained about how the how law firm economics work to the extent that actually i think that many in-house legal departments are now have now got a better handle on how much it should cost to do a certain type of work than the law firms are and the other thing that is really important and is linked to price is the, the ability to manage projects. Now, I've worked in consulting firms, in accounting firms, and in law firms, and I've been the client uh, on boards of all of those types of um, professional firm. And one of the things that, that strikes me always in the difference between the sort of proposal you would get from a, a major consulting or accounting firm is they actually break and break down their costs very easily. So whenever you ask for a proposal, you get a Gantt chart, you know, this is going to be phase one, how many people will be involved and the costs that are associated with it. With a law firm, I've been guilty of this too. You basically say, well, you know, here's our team, here's a blended rate if you're feeling creative or here's our hourly rates. And that, that really has been something that has that has just gone now. People expect lawyers to be able to manage the project well and to come in on time and on budget. Now, the fact is that there are so many variables that there are overruns that are often unavoidable. And clients can understand that, but increasingly they have procurement functions or accounts functions that really don't. And Curiously, yesterday I was shown an email that was sent to a, a super senior head of professional services in-house practice at a major, major U.S. corporation where he was being beaten up on an overrun that had less than five figures. The email that this person received from the finance department was... Uh, Unbelievable. We definitely are hearing more about project management in law firms and the work that is being done by these project managers driven by the operations executives for the firms. And they're gaining more power. I think you brought up a great example there. When you look at the other professional services firms, they're more closely managed, to your point, Gantt charts and, and other tools that they're using. What I hear a lot, Robert, is there's pushback. There's pushback at the law firms and comments that the clients don't want to work that way. We are hearing the clients do want to have a better understanding and have, to your point, gone out and gotten competitive fixed rate or flat fee parameters in which the work can be done. Two questions. We've seen a lot of hourly rate type work go away. How often is this still an issue at first? And then secondly, is there a viable explanation as to why we haven't seen stronger project management in these firms? The main reason in law firms where the project management isn't very strong still is that it's a foreign discipline. Whereas if you're doing an audit or you're doing a piece of consulting work that probably is around IT, project management actually is a critical part of how you make or don't make money. Knowing when your people are going to go in to do an audit, how far they have to travel and all that's good stuff. If you go back to the 1990s, I'm thinking about the global deals. There are a handful of firms that could actually do some of the really big deals. So basically, your ability to do the work was, could you throw you know, 60, 70 people at the deal for three or four months? 
And the clients kind of accepted that's how it got done. And increasingly, that's not really the case anymore. This is a nice lead into our question around our listeners. They've been a partner, they're a new partner, or they're they're looking to get on the partner track and they know that business development is critical to their firm and to their ability to control their careers going forward. And definitely we hear from a lot of new partners and, and frankly, established partners who have grown their business, not by having a plan but by having some opportunities, but really at this point are looking for a plan so that they can control their future. Robert, what would be your advice to them on how to start this process, how they can effectively and pretty consistently grow their business? Look at your existing clients and your own network. Now, within your own client base, if you're a senior associate, surely there are some people who you think that person is going to go far. They're going to end up as a general counsel. They're going to end up as a CFO. And you know, hitching your star to someone who you genuinely like, because actually they will genuinely like you as well, is, I think, quite a, a, a good way to go. And I would say professionals tend to feel most comfortable in the presence of other professionals. So in that network, I would actually include people who are referral sources. So, for example, if you're a you know in, in the real estate business, then you know some of the real estate professionals, the realtors, the, um, the people who are involved in the property industry would be the sort of people that you might want to network with. Which brings me on to a technique uh, that I've used quite a lot. And the idea that clients want to schlep along to your premises to come and hear you, know, you talk about a particular legal topic is getting business people in, whether that's venture capitalists or chartered surveyors, maybe accountants, actuaries, people who've got a different perspective on the same set of of issues. And I think that gives them that opportunity for peer-to-peer networking. They are definitely coming to the event to hear from you or your firm, but another strong reason is that peer-to-peer networking. Robert, what do you enjoy most about the work that you do? Helping people do the kind of work that they want to do. Helping people to build and shape their careers. Great information. Robert, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on left foot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Left Foot.